Hi everyone, welcome to the Sacred Musings podcast with me, Phil Saker. It's episode 70 today, it is the 9th of February, and today we are thinking about the Church of England. So welcome to the podcast today, everyone. There's only one topic that I really want to talk about today. That is the Church of England. Um, there's been so much happening. It's it's really been on my mind for the last uh, the last week. And that's that's really been the only thing in the news which has been on my mind, partly because it's a personal issue for me um, and also partly because it's, you know, a matter of, uh, of the church and a matter of, uh, you know, which I think is important, you know, hugely important. So, yeah, we're going to be thinking about that and um, that's going to be the main topic. I haven't really got any other news to say, actually, to begin with, just because that's been sort of dominating what I've been thinking about. Um, there's one. There's only one thing which I wanted to mention, which is I have received the proof copy of my book. Um, I'm self-publishing this via Amazon, um, so you'll be able to, in due course, hopefully in a few weeks, buy a copy from Amazon, either on Kindle or a paperback. It's called Confused by Grace, subtitle, How the Christian Life Really Works. That's what I've, I've kind of decided to call it. I think I'm going to stick with that for the moment. But really, the idea is just to think about, um, I think a lot of people are confused by, uh, you know, if God forgives us anyway, then why should we do good? Or how? You know, because we know that doing good works doesn't contribute to our salvation so why should we do them and how does that work how does grace actually make more of a difference in our lives so that's what I, why I've written the book I think there's a huge amount of confusion around at the moment and I hope that it will be something which um, you can read and, and benefit from so I will um, yeah it, it still needs to be proofread I'm going to get a couple of people to proofread it and hopefully after that it will be ready to uh, to publish and that should be within the next uh, maybe a couple of months so keep your eyes peeled anyway for the new book which is um which is due to be published and I will let you know again uh, how that's going so that's all I, I really wanted to say. There's no other kind of news that I wanted to start with. The only things which I've kind of been thinking about this week in the news are to do with the Church of England, which we're going to deal with in the main section. So this will be a bit of a different kind of a podcast. But um, yeah, all of that said, let's move on to think about whether it's game over for the Church of England. So I've called the main section of the podcast, is it game over for the Church of England? Now, I think this is a topic that I've kind of returned to a few times, but it seems to me that something is different this time. And I've been saying on the podcast for uh, as long as I've been doing it, really, that the Church of England has been taken over gradually by this kind of woke secular religion, whatever you want to call it. And it's becoming increasingly difficult to be a traditional orthodox kind of um, believer basing, you know, what we believe on the Bible. It's becoming increasingly difficult to do that within the Church of England. But I do wonder whether things are different now than they were before. And we'll, we'll come on to that. I'm sure you see what's happening in the news. Um, but I just wanted to say that you know, I do find this a difficult issue to talk about. That's because it, it's an emotional issue for me, you know, that I am a, an ordained uh, Church of England minister, that 
I've not been treated well by the church over the years and I you know I've talked about that in other places I've also I also find that I do you know the Church of England is something which I I love you know that in the sense that what the Church of England traditionally represents and you know the what is best about it I think is is wonderful and I believe that the Church of England was I think the best uh, reformed settlement you know coming out of the the Protestant Reformation so I think there are there is so much to love about the Church of England and it's it's really painful to talk about the problems but nonetheless I think talk about the problems is what we must do because it's it's really got to the point now where things things are well like I said is it actually game over let's think about that so where are we now um well as you probably have have seen in the news the church of england general synod are debating at the moment and they're talking about these proposals that the the bishops of the church of england have come up with that uh, to 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 bless same sex uh, couples or well this is the slightly slightly strange or say slightly strange thing the very strange thing which the bishops have done rather than changing the church of england's doctrine of marriage which they say would be a you know a bridge too far they don't want to change the doctrine of marriage what they've done is they've proposed and and um, are introducing these um liturgical services of blessing but they get around it not changing the doctrine of marriage by saying oh but we're not really blessing the the couples we're just blessing them even though they've taken some of the prayers from the church during the marriage services so you know it's it's utterly deceitful and duplicitous what they've done it's sophistry really that they have uh, they have you know tried to introduce these same sex blessings in a very kind of um uh you know underhand way it nothing has been right at all about about this so the church of england in the uh, the general synod which is the kind of the national administrative body of the church of england are getting together this week to debate and to vote on these things but i believe the bishops have said they're going to introduce it no matter what happens in general synod in terms of voting i think the bishops have the authority to do that so so that's um that's where we are really at the moment that's that's one bit of uh, one one bit of news the second thing which you may have seen uh, this week is that there are various priests and and others in the church of england who have been calling for the church to explore a gender neutral god you did hear that right a gender neutral god that they want that they're not happy with using gendered pronouns for god they want to instead of saying he and him when it comes to to god they want either a general neutral term or even the ability to use she and her and uh, and so on um this is coming again from within the church of england now just for the for the avoidance of um of doubt and confusion that this hasn't happened yet this has only been called for and i believe the bishops and um, the bishop responsible for liturgy has 
asked the liturgical commission to look into it. So the Church of England have said this hasn't happened yet. We're just looking into it. But nonetheless, there are calls for it and the bishops haven't stood up and said no. You know, but they've they've asked for it to be investigated with the, the potential that things might change. So, you know, that's that's kind of another another factor about where we are. Um, a third strand, and this is I've just got three. The third strand of where we are at the moment is um, there is um, that the Christians who stand up for traditional biblical faith are now getting rebuked and and slapped down, as it were. Um, let me just quote you here from an article by Gavin Ashenden. Um, Gavin Ashenden, he he was a member of the uh, the Church of England. He's now moved to Roman Catholicism for reasons which we could go into um, another time. But he knows the Church of England well. I think he was on General Synod for quite a few years. And uh, I, I always think he's got some interesting things to say. Uh, so this is what he wrote from an article in the Catholic Herald. Uh, just to give a bit of background to this, there's a member of General Synod called Sam Margrave. And uh, Sam Margrave is uh, is um, uh, a traditional uh, Christian. You know, he's um, a, I think a lay member of General Synod, and he has been quite vocal and active online on Twitter and on social media about you know the the problems with what's going on in the Church of England, and particularly the proposals that the bishops have made, and the problems with endorsing Pride and LGBT and so on. So he's been very vocal about that. And he obviously has had complaints about him. The bishops have had complaints about him from members of the clergy and, and so on. They've written to them saying, oh, Sam Margrave is being mean to us or, or what have you. So they, uh, the bishops, and that is the archbishops, Justin Welby and Stephen Cottrell, have written to him, written to him mind, uh, with a, basically a rebuke saying, stop, you should stop and be careful of, of you know, all of this uses of, uses of social media to say these things. So um, Gavin Ashenden wrote an article about this in the Catholic Herald. Let me just quote you a little bit from what he said. I don't remember either an Archbishop of Canterbury or York publicly rebuking anyone before. It's not done. It's not part of the Anglican lexicon. There are no rebukes for heresy or public or personal immorality. There have been no rebukes directed towards high-profile media LGBT plus priests like the one who wrote recently of how he and his gay partner had set out to deceive the church about their nuptial arrangements. Rebuking is just not done. The word is never used. Until the archbishops found themselves outraged at Mr Margrave's lack of nuance. Oh yes, in, in the letter that they sent to him, by the way, just again a bit more background. They rebuked him because he hadn't displayed very much nuance in what he said. So uh, Gavin Nashenden continues. Nuance is a value much appreciated in Anglican circles. It is prized as the virtue of not quite saying what you mean. It is often taken to be the practice of the talking with just enough obfuscation to give the impression you are being polite when you actually intend to be rather rude. It's a very English middle class thing. It always baffles Americans in particular. And Mr Margrave's failure to use it has caused what looks like double archiepiscopal apoplexy. 
This probably happened because Mr Margrave actually wanted to say exactly what he meant, because he thinks it really matters. There we go. I, I think Gavin is absolutely brilliant here and, and on the money, that the bishops don't rebuke anyone for anything. That is part of the problem in the Church of England, that the bishops never rebuke anyone for anything. But uh, Sam Margrave displays a lack of nuance about LGBT and all, they're on him like a ton of bricks. And I think this just shows where we are in the Church of England. You know, you can do anything, you can say anything, as long as it's not defending traditional Orthodox Christian teaching, in which case the bishops will come down hard on you. You know, if you want to get anywhere in the Church of England, if you want to be promoted, as it were, to archdeacon, to bishop, whatever, you have to believe in Project Church of England. You have to be on board. And someone who's critical like this will never get anywhere. And I, I just wanted to highlight that because that's where we are in the Church of England, that the bishops are not simply promoting what is wrong, what is heretical themselves. They are actively rebuking and stopping anyone from, from disagreeing. Uh, particularly anyone who, who upsets the apple cart, it seems. So this is where we are at the moment. So let's, uh, let's summarise this. Uh, the church is about to introduce blessings for same-sex couples. And I, I think it hasn't quite, as I'm recording this, hasn't quite gone through General Synod. I think that the bishops are saying they're planning to introduce it regardless whatever happens in General Synod. So I think I can say with a, a reasonable degree of confidence that it, it, everything is, you know, is going through. That, but even if it doesn't, you know, the bishops have made it very clear what their position is. In the press conferences and in everything, you can't, you can't mistake what they are saying now, which is that they see absolutely nothing wrong and sinful about same-sex couples and that, you know, the Bible is, I mean, Stephen Cottrell, actually, Archbishop of York, he was saying, uh, there's a video going around where he, he was responding to a question from um, uh, someone who was saying, um, it's development of doctrine, you know, that, that that's what is happening, it's development of doctrine. So that's what the bishops seem to believe, that they they are believing, they are changing what the church believes uh, one way or another even if they haven't quite changed the doctrine of marriage just yet it is a first step for them so you know i, I think the bishops have made their position absolutely clear now uh, there's no there's no mistaking you know whereas before it was all kind of hush hush behind closed doors and whatnot a few of the bishops broke ranks to actually come out and say it but now by and large it's it's out in the open for everyone to see on the, by contrast, those who hold to the traditional teaching of the church are being criticised and rebuked by the bishops, as happened to uh, Sam Margrave, but also uh, other people too. It, it probably happens in less um, dramatic or you know publicised uh, ways. But people who hold to what the Bible teaches, to what the, the church has traditionally believed, are now being silenced and criticized by the bishops so they are not simply promoting what's wrong they are silencing and sidelining people who want to hold to what the bible uh, teaches 
And um, I've said clergy who hold to the biblical position have been thrown under a bus. And what I mean by this is that, you know, the bishops, by not having the courage of their convictions, by not being the, you know, saying, well, okay, we're going to change the doctrine of marriage to same-sex marriage. You either believe in that or you get out. Um, They could have said that. And that would have at least, that would have been wrong, but at least it would have been, you know, um, a, a sort of consistent and kind of um, bold a position to take. At least it would have, you know, we would have known where we were there. But by saying, well, you can use these prayers if you like in a church, but we're just going to leave it down to the to the parish priest to uh, to to decide. Do they not realise that they are throwing parish priests under a bus? Because what happened before, you know, when Church of England priests could not marry same-sex couples, we could say, well, it's it's the law. It's you know, the bishops have spoken against it. We can't do it. You know, it's not it's not down to us. It's the consistent position of the church. Whereas now, then a couple could approach um, a church and say, well, why are you not using these prayers? You know, what where the church down the road is using these prayers, you're not. Why not? And it's all down to the parish priest, and there is, you know, the, the the bishops should be the ones defending the faith in public. You know, they should be the ones upholding traditional Christian Orthodox teaching. You know, whereas they've just thrown all of their Orthodox clergy under a bus, and it hurts a lot. Um, so yeah, it's a real abdication of responsibility by the bishops there. Um, so that's where we are. The second thing is the church is now considering gender neutral terms for God, as I said. Now, this, I believe, is actual heresy. This is actual you know, heresy is a word which sometimes gets overused. People say heresy when what they really mean is heterodox. Um, so heter- heterodox means deviating from orthodox teaching, whereas heresy has a more specific definition, which is to do with the creeds and you know what we understand about God. And I think that considering gender neutral terms for God is heresy because it is you know, God is, as the, the church has always believed since the very early days of the church, God has revealed himself as the Father, Son and the Holy Spirit that there is you know three in one one in three and that these terms the father the son and the spirit particularly the father and the son are not just terms of convenience but that they are they mean something and this was all worked out in the early church when you had a, a chap called arius come along who said well jesus you know the son of god it doesn't really mean doesn't really mean that it just means you know he's the first created being and the early church considered that heresy and said no the son's a real son not not a son in the way or in every way that human being uh human beings may be a son or you know we may have a son but that the father and the son represent something true about god and if we use gender neutral terms we are denying something about god and that is that is heresy there was um, a good article on the Babylon Bee, actually, which um, a few years ago, which says, you know, bigoted progressive Christian refuses to use God's preferred pronouns, um, which I think it puts the point across in a very funny way. But it is that that God has revealed himself using these in this way. You know, he has chosen the way that he's 
communicated to us. Who are we to change that? It's not down to us. It's not down to any part of the church to to change what we've received, this inheritance of faith that we've received. This is this is awful. And you have to wonder, now what is the agenda of people who do want to change to use gender neutral pronouns for God? I think that what they really want is the undoing of traditional Christianity. It's this secular religion which is um, infecting the church, is coming into the church and is trying to take over. And what they want to do is destroy everything and they want to take over everything so that they can have it all. That's what's happening here. And the idea that, that, that the bishops could not see this and that these clergy could not see this, could not see what is happening, I think just shows how deep down the rabbit hole that they've actually gone. Now, I think would the bishops even be considering this if they were actually orthodox and, and understood um, the Trinity and, and understood the importance of, of that? I don't think they would. You know, all of this has just made me think there's a um, in the book of Ezekiel, who is a, a prophet in, in the Old Testament. There is a moment in Ezekiel where because of the sin of the people, because of the, the corruption of the religious leaders and the priests and everything, the glory of the Lord departs. This is what it says, Ezekiel 10 verse 18. Then the glory of the Lord departed from over the threshold of the temple. And this is part of Ezekiel's vision where he sees the glory of the Lord kind of leaving Jerusalem, you know, going elsewhere. And I think we are witnessing a moment like that in the Church of England where the glory of the Lord, it's been departing for a while, but I think this may be the moment where it actually just goes. I think I mentioned um, a few uh, weeks ago that my tutor at college, um, a chap called um, Peter Sanlon, uh, he did a sermon some years ago where he said that um, God had abandoned the spiritual leadership of the Church of England. I think it's been proved right and I think this is just a, a, the outworking of that happening now but you know there's such a complete lack of discernment in the spiritual leadership of the Church of England and I think you know that the, the idea of the glory of the Lord departing is a you know is opposite for, for what's happened. The reason that this matters so much is because it's so far from what the church should be. So let me quote here from the book of 1 Timothy in the New Testament, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 to 16. Although I hope to come to you soon, I am writing you these instructions so that, if I'm delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God the pillar and foundation of the truth. Beyond all question, the mystery from which true godliness springs is great. He appeared in the flesh, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, was taken up in glory. And this is the Apostle Paul writing uh, to Timothy, and Timothy was a, um, if you like, a church leader or a pastor, um, and uh, he was giving him his instructions. And um, so Paul says, 
um, these is given these instructions, he says, so that people ought uh, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household. It says how people conduct themselves, the way that they act, the way that they live is of foundational importance. You know that that our behavior matters to God. And it's it, it really goes against so much of what's in the church now, this kind of cheap grace which I think I've talked about before, which says, well, God forgives us, so we don't need to bother living rightly at all. Paul says, no, no, no. You know, you need to know how to conduct yourselves in God's household. That's really important. Living rightly is important. That's not to say that we we earn our place, our salvation, by living by living in a in a particular way, by trying to obey God, because we can't. But we need to know how to conduct ourselves in God's household. And uh, he also goes on to say, the church, the church, this is the church of the living God. You know, think about that for a second. The church of the living God. This is God's church. This says something about him. It's, it should be the pillar and foundation of the truth because God is, God is truth. God is cannot lie. The church should reflect God, should represent him. And it is not. And, you know, the, the things that we believe, how Christ was came in, in as a man, you know, vindicated by the spirit and all of those things that Paul goes on to say, it makes a difference. You know, and how we live that out makes a difference. And this is why I think I find what the bishops are doing and what, what the Church of England are doing in general just so absolutely galling. Because it is completely the opposite of what the church should be. You know, the church, yes, the church is full of people who are sinners, who do wrong things. Of course it is. Even bishops and clergy, as well as lay people, we all are. But, you know, we should be upholding the truth. It should be built on the foundation of the truth. And we should be seeking for that and seeking to be closer to what God wants us to be, rather than moving further away from it. And I, I'm just so utterly disgusted, I think, with the way that the, the bishops and, and others have been dragging the church down rather than leading towards greater godliness and holiness. It is, it is a disgrace, actually, to the name of Christ. And, yeah, looking at that, I, I think, just puts things in, in perspective for me. So... All of this, I think it leaves us with some uncomfortable questions, all of us as Anglicans. Um, if you're not a member of the Church of England, then, um, well, these are perhaps less less uncomfortable questions for you. But I hope that they'll be, they'll be interesting anyway. Um, if you are uh, in the Church of England, then these will be uncomfortable questions. But I think particularly, I know that there are at least one or two church leaders who, who listen or, or watch the podcast and um, I think these are things which we in particular will have to grapple with. But uh, perhaps um, lay, lay people as well, you know, these are, especially if you serve on PCCs or, you know, you're a lay leader in the church. These are, you know, either way, hold your leaders to account. That's what you must do. So question, the first thing is, do you think that they are actually Christians? And when I say they, I'm talking about the bishops in particular but also, you know, the people, many of the people in synod, um, clergy and, and so on, 
who are the ones calling for, for these changes. It seems to me that uh, duplicity and this kind of political speech is not a fruit of the Spirit. The way that the, the bishops have gone about uh, trying to introduce this kind of same-sex uh, blessing by the back door, if you like, circumventing the doctrines of, of marriage that the church has, or, or trying to, is so wicked. You know, it's, it, it is deceitful. That is not the way that we should be doing things. We should not be rebuking people who stand up for the truth. We should not be... Uh, there are so many things which they are doing which are just wrong, you know, and, and I think part of the problem is too many people don't, although they may disagree, don't really see it as immoral, but they are acting immorally. And I have to wonder, therefore, we should must ask that question, are they really walking with God? Are they really walking with Christ if they're acting in the way that they are doing? And, you know, I know that it's it's not a not a, a something which we should do in, in, in a sense to sort of pass judgment on someone else's salvation. But when we have public members of the church who are making these statements and acting in a certain way, then I think it's right to ask the question, even if we know that finally they stand or fall before God. Um, I, I just wonder whether, you know, the outcome of the living and love and faith process, you know, this process which um, Synod at the moment is bringing to an end, whether we should be at all surprised because for so many years the bishops and senior clergy have not been preaching the same gospel that I, I preach. They have not been preaching the gospel of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. I remember in my um, IME training, which is in the Church of England when you're ordained, you have training therefore while you're a curate for about two or three years, um, sort of like on-the-job training, I suppose, but just, you know. And, and and sin, sin was not mentioned once in my training that I did. And this was a few years ago now. You know, I've been, been ordained for about nine years, so this is a few years ago. And you know, when was the last time that you actually heard a senior uh, senior clergy call people to repent and call people to actually believe and trust in Jesus? Now, they just don't talk about that anymore. And so you have to wonder, have they actually, you know, are they Christians who've gone astray or or have they just fallen out of the faith? Have they just lost faith if they did have faith to start with? Has it all gone? And, you know, I really think we have to ask that question. It's an uncomfortable question to ask because we don't like looking into into other people's souls, as it were. But I think we have to ask that question. And frankly, it seems to me, I wouldn't let these people serve on a PCC, let alone be bishops in God's church. A, a PCC, by the way, is a local um, church council for a, a parish church. It's sort of the administrative um, council of the church, looking after finances and buildings and uh, fabrics, that kind of thing. Um, yeah, w I mean, would you let these people serve on a PCC? I'll leave that, I'll leave that question with you. Um, Secondly, which kind of flows in, flows on from this question, are you happy for these bishops uh, who came up with this dishonest blessings plan to be in charge? Are you happy for them to do confirmations and preach at your church, for example? 
this is one of the things that bishops do one of the things where they're busiest they go around and do confirmations and uh, and they, they'll preach at the church when they go and do a confirmation are you happy for them to come to your church have knowing even if they don't say anything controversial at the time knowing that they've gone with this dishonest plan are you happy for them to be in charge of making appointments in your parish and this is the thing folks that there is no provision in the church of england even if there are, there is sort of alternative oversight for traditional catholics and for um conservative evangelicals who um who want a, a alternative oversight about the you know not wanting a women bishop um that sort of thing um but nonetheless that the these alternative the alternative oversight is only by the permission of the diocesan bishop. The diocesan bishop still has the ultimate authority. That's the thing here, that you can't get away from it. And, you know, the, I know that there will be people, there are um, clergy, uh, you know, vicars who will say, well, I'm out of communion with my bishop. Well, OK, what happens when you retire then? You know, it just reverts back to the bishop. The bishop makes the appointment back in the church unless you put plans in place to actually you know move outside the church of england which some have done for example um Mel the late melvin tinker did that with uh, st john's newland in hull um he took the church out of the church of england and that there are others uh, other churches who have done the same thing but really you know legally speaking the bishops do have the power and if you declare yourself out of communion with the bishop or if you withhold your parish share, it's not going to change the fact that the bishops have the authority. And that's what needs to be broken, I think. Um, so I think that's another uncomfortable question which needs to be to be uh, dealt with. Some more uncomfortable questions a bit more briefly. Um, are you happy to share a deanery with people who have a very different understanding of the gospel where heterodox views are not disciplined? Uh, this is the thing in the Church of England. Every every um, church is not just a church on its own, but is part of a deanery, which is the legal unit. And there's an arch, uh, a a, um, a rural dean or a uh, a dean of of the area who is kind of um, watches over. And, and there's a committees and so on. So you know, every Anglican church is part of a a bigger group of local churches called a deanery. And many of those deaneries will have. Uh, people who have very different views and as I said we know we have to ask the question of whether some of these people are actually Christian I think and yeah that's and, and, and the thing is their views will not be disciplined by the bishops you know are you happy about that no and and, and and what I'm what I'm trying to get at here is if we're not happy what are we going to do about it that is the thing are you happy to undertake uh, training, for example, safeguarding from people who are not Christian? I've recently um, had to um, do my, my safeguarding training. And the thing is, in the safeguarding training in the Church of England is becoming more and more hostile to traditional beliefs, particularly in the areas of LGBT. And I noticed this when I did my last training. It, it kind of stopped short of saying your traditional beliefs about marriage are harmful it didn't say that, but I can well imagine it being used in the future to go down that road. Are we happy about that? You know, who are we submitting ourselves to, to the authority of? And the final question is, are you happy with increasing centralisation and bureaucracy? 
This is what's happening in the Church of England. More and more power is being taken away from parishes and given to the central bureaucracy. Um, and, you know, they direct the funding, they they um, control appointments. Um, so many things now are being done by a central bureaucracy. And this bureaucracy is the bureaucracy which the bishops are kind of part of. You know, they're managers, really. They're managers of a bureaucracy rather than spiritual leaders. And it's this bureaucracy which has so much power. And I think therein, therein lies the problem. So let me add a couple of um, passages from the Bible here. I've got um, one passage here which talks about light and darkness and whether the two things can mix. So let, let me read this out. This is, oh, I haven't put the reference on here. I think this is um, 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Um, and um, I think it's starting at verse uh, verse 14. Anyway, this is what it says. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? Or what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing, and I will receive you. I think these are pretty hard-hitting words for us in the Church of England right now. What does it mean to be yoked together with unbelievers? Because I think that's that's effectively the point. And particularly, what does it mean to be yoked together with unbelievers who are have legal authority over us? Is that a good position to be in? I'm not sure that it is. And I think this is a really tough question that we're going to have to grapple with over the coming months, which is, you know, and I, and I think part of the problem is I think this is rebounding on us for not having dealt with this issue uh, over many years, you know, as bishops have become increasingly secular and godless, I think, then we haven't really looked into these things and we've just said, well, it's only about the doctrine of marriage. So long as the doctrine of marriage doesn't change and the doctrines of the Church of England don't change, then what does it matter? And ignoring the very fact that many of the people, even though the doctrine on paper hasn't changed, the people who are tasked with, given the, the responsibility of enforcing and upholding that doctrine are not godly what fellowship do we have with them i don't think that's a that's an easy question to answer um, in terms of practicalities but certainly the principle i think is clear and will require thinking thinking through um, and i've just got one more set of quotes here this is um, a couple of quotes about false teachers so uh, the new testament talks about um, believers and unbelievers, but also talks about false teachers, those within the church who teach falsely. So this is one quote here, um, 2 Peter chapter 2. The whole letter of 2 Peter is uh, really about false teaching. And chapter 2 is the whole chapter it, within the book is dedicated to that. Um, but let me just read you a uh, three verses from, from the beginning of that chapter. But there were also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, 
they will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. Many will follow their, te- uh, their depraved conduct and will bring the way of truth into disrepute. In their greed, these teachers will exploit you with fabricated stories. Their condemnation has long been hanging over them, and their destruction has not been sleeping. Peter calls out false teaching for what it is, and says it is destructive, it is it is leads people to hell, and it must not be tolerated. This is and you know um, it, it comes down very hard necessarily on false teachers. It's, false teachers are actually worse in a sense than unbelievers, because false teachers are within what is supposed to be God's church, the pillar of the truth, as we we saw. And to be someone leading people to hell within God's church is a highly um, uh, dangerous and and terrible thing. Um, so Peter comes down very hard on it. And let me quote to you from another uh, another letter of a uh, to Timothy. I think I had another quote from uh, from one Timothy earlier. This is from the second letter to Timothy, uh, chapter two. Avoid godless chatter because those who indulge in it will become more and more ungodly. Their teaching will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have departed from the truth. They say that the resurrection has already taken place, and they destroy the faith of some. Nevertheless, God's solid foundation stands firm, sealed with this inscription, The Lord knows those who are his. And everyone who confesses the name of the Lord must turn away from wickedness. Opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth and that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. So it says that the uh, false teaching will spread like gangrene. Think what gangrene is it's when the the living tissue kind of dies off, and uh, what he's saying there is that it will it will cause death, it will bring things, living things to death. That's what false teaching does, and um, these he gives a couple of examples have already departed from the truth. So it seems to me like they have just you know they were perhaps Christian at one point, but they've left, they have left it, and. Um, It says they destroy people's faith. That's what false teaching does. Uh, But it says God's foundation stands firm. The Lord knows those who are his. So even then, God knows those who are his and he holds those who are his. And that those who know must turn away from wickedness. Because that's what false teaching does. False teaching allows people to continue in wickedness. It says... You know, God's standards of purity and holiness do not matter. Just go and live as you like and God will forgive you anyway. Basically, that's what false teaching is in one of its various different forms. Effectively saying, God doesn't really care. He's just a nice chap. You're a nice, you know, you're nice. Go and do what you like. Doesn't matter. That is false teaching and that is dangerous. You know, but whereas those who know the truth must turn away from wickedness. And it says there that opponents must be gently instructed so that those who who um, oppose the truth have been taken captive to do the will of Satan. But, you know, we must 
uh, gently instruct them, it says. But I think this kind of presupposes that we are in a position to do this. It's very well if you're a church leader and someone in your church is kind of coming up and, and saying, um, you know, uh, wrong things about the Bible. You gently instruct them. But if it's a bishop, how do you gently instruct a bishop? And particularly if they're not listening, as they have been, uh, many people have written to the bishops, have said in, in general synod, there are orthodox people who have spoken, they're not being listened to, the bishops are not listening. So, you know, this is the thing, I think, you know, if they've been taken captive by Satan to do his will, and they're not listening, then what? Um, that is That is the thing here. So I just wanted to finish by thinking about um, what the Church of England Evangelical Council, the CEEC, call a visible differentiation. I think other people have used this phrase as well, which is the idea that, you know, we must separate and orthodox believers must be distinguished from unorthodox believers. Um, and I wanted to ask, is it possible to do that, uh, to, to be uh, separated from um, you know the, the the people who believe in the Bible and the people who believe in traditional Orthodox Christianity are, are distinguished from those who don't. Is it possible to do that within the Church of England while remaining in the Church of England? I think there is a lesson that we can learn by looking over to the Episcopal Church in the USA. So the Episcopal Church went down the road of gay marriage some time ago, quite a few years ago now, about twenty years, I think. It's it's gone down that road. And what ended up happening is that there are some churches, Orthodox churches, who have remained in the Episcopal Church in America. Um, largely, I think they, the ones that have done it have been able to do it because they have had Orthodox bishops who have shielded them. So there are still one or two good Orthodox bishops in the Episcopal Church in America. But... Um, and some churches have been able to remain, but many haven't. And this led to the creation of the Anglican Church in North America, uh, that is the uh, the ACNA, as it is known, which um, is now a sort of alternative Anglican province. It's completely outside the structures of the Episcopal Church, has its own bishops, um, and it, it has its own sort of networks. And that, I think, is going great guns. The Episcopal Church is losing members by, you know, by the truckload and losing money and, you know, um, and, and what have you. It has been difficult for those churches that have left. Um, some of them have been sued by the Episcopal Church because they've kept their buildings and, and so on. It has been difficult, but I think they have experienced God's blessing by differentiating themselves in this way. And I'm not sure whether it's possible to remain in the Church of England and differentiate, especially if we are legally bound together in deaneries which are where there are ungodly people and so on. Something which people often say is that I will stay in the Church of England until I get kicked out. And I think in some ways that, that is a commendable thing. I do wonder whether part of the reason that the Orthodox haven't been kicked out earlier is because we haven't kicked up enough of a stink. Now, I think we've we've been nice and, you know, we've obviously not, not wanted to rock the boat. But I think the time, is, the time for nice is over. And I think we need to call things what they are, which is evil. As Jesus, um, I mean, Jesus himself 
he used strong words when he needed to. This is, for example, what he said to the Pharisees at one point. Uh, Matthew 23, verse 33. You snakes, you brood of vipers, how will you escape being condemned to hell? Now, that kind of language would definitely have earned Jesus a rebuke from the bishops. Um, but this is the thing. I think if we genuinely call out what is happening as evil and stand against it, I think you know, that's going to force the church <clears throat> one way or the other to respond, either by kicking out the orthodox or by, by changing. I think what will not work is this kind of woolly, well, let's all work together because we're Christians. You know, we think you're Christian. You think we're Christian. Let's just work together. I don't think that's going to work. And, and I think we've seen that strategy has failed. You know, sometimes you just need to stand up and say something for what it is. You need to call a spade a spade. Um, I'm um, I'm you know sort of raised in Suffolk, and um, you know Suffolk people traditionally they are quite blunt and honest, and um, I think I've inherited some of that. And I think you know we we need to call a spade a spade. We need to say evil is what it is. And when the bishops are going down this road, we don't need now at this point to say, well yes, we can understand what you're trying to do. You're trying to be kind, but you know perhaps let's now that's no the time for politicking is over. Evil is evil. Going away from God's truth, going away from God's word is evil. That is what we need to be saying. And if that means we get kicked out, then I would rather be kicked out of the Church of England for saying things are evil and wrong than, you know, just kind of go along and, and be kind of a, a, on the fringes, but still part of it because, um, because you know, I'm just not, not prepared to stand up and say the truth. So... Anyway, all of that said, we will see how things develop. Um, I, 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 you know, as I said, I think I've said before, you know, I, I've been part of a group on Facebook and, and elsewhere where these questions about what we should do as the Church of you know, members of the Church of England are hotly debated. Some people say we should all leave and they said that we should have done that years ago. Other people say, no, no, we need to stay and fight. And I kind of think, well, I think at this point, I think we just need to call a spade a spade. And um, hopefully things will become clearer over the coming weeks and months about what needs to be done. Um, but um, but there we go. Do let me know your thoughts. Uh, comment down below if you're on YouTube. You can uh, join the Telegram channel and let me know your thoughts on that Telegram. Or you can uh, write to me by email sacredmusingspod at gmail.com. And uh, thanks so much, everyone, for uh, sort of commented and um, left comments on my previous uh, podcast. I do, really do appreciate that. So I think we need to finish with a reflection from the Bible and we're going to do that now. We're going to have a psalm as we close. Well, the main section of the podcast was a little bit longer than I, I uh, sort of wanted it to be. So, um, But uh, that was the main thing, the, the only thing I really wanted to talk about today. So I hope that you, you um, appreciated that. But it's yeah, um, always the right thing to do, I think, in these circumstances to focus on a psalm. I think we might have had this psalm before. I can't remember. But either way, it's a really good one. And I sort of came across it today as I was doing a bit of uh, research. Um, so we'll read this psalm. It's Psalm 112. Psalm 112. So let me read it out for us. Praise the Lord. Blessed are those who fear the Lord who find great delight in his commands. 
Their children will be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches are in their houses, and their righteousness endures forever. Even in darkness, light dawns for the upright, for those who are gracious and compassionate and righteous. Good will come to those who are generous and lend freely, who conduct their affairs with justice. Surely the righteous will never be shaken. They will be remembered forever. They will have no fear of bad news. Their hearts are steadfast, trusting in the Lord. Their hearts are secure. They will have no fear. In the end, they will look in triumph on their foes. They have freely scattered their gifts to the poor. Their righteousness endures forever. Their horn will be lifted high in honour. The wicked will see and be vexed. They will gnash their teeth and waste away. The loggings of the wicked will come to nothing. I think this is a great psalm. Um, many of the psalms in this sort of vein, of course, but I think this is is wonderful. Just saying that the one who is blessed by God is the one who finds great delight in his commands, the one who delights to obey him, who takes delight in in doing the right thing and the loving thing. That is what it means to be blessed by God. And and the blessing extends to, you know, say, saying, talking about children, their generation, um, uh, wealth and riches even. Um, you know, I, I'm not a prosperity gospel preacher, of course. I don't say, you know, if you believe God, God will give you a Ferrari or a million pounds or something like that. But I think there is a blessing to be found in obeying God, that God will give us what we need. And um, it says, I love this, even in darkness... Light dawns for the upright. Good will come to those who are generous and lend freely. And I think, you know, that's so wonderful, isn't it? To think even in darkness, light dawns for the upright. If we commit ourselves to obeying God by the power of the Holy Spirit, you know, to seeking him, seeking his will, to loving God, to loving others, then God will look after us. And I think, you know, this this second half of the psalm, surely the righteous will never be shaken. They'll have no fear of bad news. Their hearts are secure and, and so on. You know, that when God sees um, those who are seeking him, seeking to do good, seeking his paths of love, then we do not need to fear anything. Because ultimately our security and our refuge are in him. And we do not need to, to worry in, uh, um, about any human institution, whether that be the Church of England or the World Economic Forum or the government or whoever. But our hearts can be steadfast, trusting in him, because he will do good to those who seek him, to those who, who are um, seeking to, to put his ways into practice. Whereas it says the wicked will see and be vexed, they will gnash their teeth and waste away. And, you know, I like that, that they will see the way that God looks after the righteous and they will be vexed and gnash their teeth. They will hate the fact that God blesses those who who seek him. But that's what God does. That's his choice. It made me think, actually, there's a, in the book of Esther, um, there's a, the story of Esther in the Bible. If you haven't read it, it's not a long book in the Old Testament. It's really interesting and, and worth reading. It's notable, I believe, because it's I think it's the only book in the Bible which does not actually mention God by name. But nonetheless, God is sort of all over the book um, just by sort of coincidence. Um, 
But yeah, um, there's one point in the book where um, Esther's, um, oh, what is it her uncle, uh, Haman, I think. Um, it, it, yeah, the, his, he has an enemy who who says, you know, um, the king says to him, how should I, tr-, you know, honor someone who the king wants to honor? And this evil chap, you know, thinking he's talking about the king's talking about himself says oh well you should parade him through the streets and say you know and uh, you know with a with a, a a marching band or whatever following him saying this is who who the king honors and the king said oh great do that to haman you know the chap that you hate and uh, i think that's brilliant and that's i think is a picture of what that verse is describing that god will honor those who honor him and we can trust in him we do not need to have fear of bad news in the end of the day because we can be steadfast and trusting God. And he is the one who will get us through all of the, the wickedness and the evil that we are facing at the moment. He's the one who's going to get us through. So let's uh, take a moment to pray as we come to a close of this, uh, this podcast. Heavenly Father, we do commit the Church of England to you. We don't know, Lord, what the future holds for the Church of England. Um, we don't know, Lord... Um, what will happen but we can trust it to you and we pray that you would give us the grace to stand up for what is right and true and to call out evil for what it is please help us to be bold and courageous in doing so and we pray that you would help us to walk closely with you and to trust you through this and we pray that you would uh, enable us to be steadfast and trusting not to have any fear of bad news but to trust you in every circumstance knowing that you are uh, you will honor those who honor you and we pray that you would help us to honor you day by day we ask all of these things in jesus's name amen well thank you so much everyone for joining me on this podcast it's been a bit of a different one so i hope that you um you haven't minded that too much and i hope that it's been interesting to you uh, the the machinations of the church of england at the moment like i said do let me know what you think also if you'd like to support me there's a buy me a coffee link uh, which i really do um, appreciate as well um those of you who've uh, who've been able to to do that um so yeah I'll see you next week or I'll be back on the podcast. Um, and I won't be back next week because um, I'm away. I might do a shorter podcast a bit earlier on in the week, but normal, normal service will be resumed in two weeks time. So I'll see you then. Uh, in the meantime, God bless.